Man, think about the how profound it is, those words. Uh, I bear it no more. I bear my sin no more. Think of all your sins and we bear them no more. Man, that's, that's glorious, glorious stuff. Uh, on another note, there is breaking news here at Fellowship Bible Church, and that is Rob Bloss, our uh, uh, operational pastor you just heard from, has been fired <laughs> for disparaging his leaders publicly. So we'll continue to work through that pain. And, for <laughs> and uh, uh, on another note, it is my birthday tomorrow. I'll be 59. I know I don't look it, okay? I know I don't, so it's okay. My wife has taken good care of me. And uh, uh, losing some weight helped a little bit. So, no, I'm old as heck. That's okay. Uh, and I'm not older than our country. Thank you, Rob. Uh, if you want to know why I can be a little nar narcissist, I was raised to be a narcissist. Uh, for the first 10, 11 years of my wife, my parents told me that our whole country was celebrating my birthday. It, it was a great disappointment uh, when I found out. Uh, but I've been working through those issues now for 40-plus years, and maybe I'm on the other side of, of my narcissism training. So don't do that to you parents, uh, to you kids' parents. All right, turn with me, if you would, to Hebrews <clears throat> chapter 13 as we enter into the last chapter of the book of Hebrews. And as we begin, allow me to remind you, hold on, set my watch or I'll go, you know, Monty's not here. I could go a long time. Right? Sorry. There you go. Uh, yeah, I don't have money on the front row going. <laughs> uh, but allow me to remind you where we've been up to this point. For the most part, in chapters 1 through 11, in the book of Hebrews, the writer told us of the greatness of the Lord Jesus Christ. In doing so, he laid out this rich doctrinal foundation, and he encouraged us with Christ-exalting examples of how you and I can endure and walk by faith in chapter 11. And in the midst of all that, there was sprinkled some very practical, personal application of how shall we then live. We have gotten to the phase where it's all personal, practical application of how you and I are to live here in church, uh, chapter 13. Put it another way, the writer taught us about God and what he has done to secure the precious and the very great promises of our future in his son. And today he will tell us the kind of behavior that grows out of faith in or trust in those very great promises. Because what you and I believe impacts greatly how you and I live. That's how the scriptures work. Belief, live. Our context comes from Hebrews 12, 28. The next to last verse before we jump to 13 that Chad did a great job last week. If you weren't here, I'd encourage you to go listen. But it says this, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. 
A synonym for acceptable for that Greek word is pleasing. So now the writer is going to show us in chapter 13 what it looks like to be grateful and to therefore live a life that is pleasing to the Lord Jesus. And ultimately, ultimately, as a reminder, we are to worship Christ in all of life, not just in our private devotions, not just on a Sunday morning, and then we sort of clock out. That's the kind of church that I grew up in. You got an hour on Sunday, you do whatever the heck you want the rest of the week. That was my home growing up. But our whole lives are to be ones that are pleasing to him. Here's how Paul puts it in a very familiar passage in Romans 12, 1 and 2. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by the testing, by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. So in light of that, let us look at verses 1 through 6 this morning. And the first concrete example is the statement in verse 1, the command. Let brotherly love continue. Let brotherly love continues. Now, if you notice a quick reading of chapter 13, uh, these commands of our writer of the book of Hebrews comes at you like a machine gun. <laughs> I mean, one right after another. Honestly, as I looked at it, I could do three to five messages on every topic there and us not get to the bottom of what it means of those commands. And so I'm trying to give you the core this morning. If some of you think, God, Jeff left that out. Well, yeah, I left a lot out. So this was a hard editing message. But it's coming at us fast and furious, and these commands are supposed to be evidence of a life lived in gratitude to the grace of Christ toward us. And the overwhelming emphasis as we look at these commands, these evidence, if you would, of how to live, are, are horizontal in nature, meaning our vertical relationship through the whole book of Hebrews has been saying, draw near, draw near, draw near. And the implication of that is it should affect everything horizontally, relationally, and horizontally with others. Our vertical intimacy with God in Christ flows out to our horizontal relationships with others. Here's how the Apostle John put it in 1 John 3. He says, this is how we know what love is, that Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Paul puts it like this in what I call the marriage chapter. 1 Corinthians 13, that goes out the window about 48 hours after you're married. Paul says, I speak, when describing love, he says, I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love. If I do that, he basically, I'm summarizing, you are crazy as a cricket in a hubcap, right? It makes no sense. So, especially in the book of Hebrews, where the horizontal element is so crucial because people are defecting, stepping away from the faith, and they need more than anything somebody to come alongside of them and let brotherly love continue. Here's how our writer speaks to that in Hebrews 3. 
He says, see to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another daily, as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We need each other. And our writer carries that concern over with our first command, let brotherly love continue. Here's how I would define brotherly love love or sisterly love okay speaks to both the affection we have towards fellow believers in jesus expressed in attitudes and shown in tangible behavior attitude is so important is it not if i don't think the best of someone and ask lots of clarifying questions and you know it goes on in your mind my attitude can just put this person in a box and consider them all bad versus no one is all bad and no one is all good we're a mixture a complex mixture of both so attitudes are important the word brotherly love is the word philadelphia now the city of philadelphia is called what the city yes I don't think it's keeping up with its name at this point. Do a little Google on that, which was really tragic as I looked at it this week. And this word brotherly love or Philadelphia is only used speaking of biological siblings, siblings or those who are blood related. But here's what happened. Christianity comes along and hijacks that word for the glory of God in its own purpose and in doing so it became pervasive in the entire new testament look how many times that word is used speaking of love for another now the reason christianity can legitimately hijack this word is because of what jesus has done for us in his life and death and resurrection here's how the writer of hebrews puts it back in hebrews 2 11 says jesus the one who makes people holy that's us he makes us righteous before a righteous god and those who are made holy are of the same family so jesus is not ashamed to call them what brothers and sisters folks one of the great doctrinal foundations of the church is when a person comes to christ you and I, those who come to Christ, are now family. We belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, therefore to each other. We are kinfolk, if you would, not by natural blood, but by spiritual blood, the blood of Christ. Our being kinfolk is because of Christ supersedes any other kind of relationship we had. Remember what Jesus said, if you're going to love me, you must what? hate your mother and father it's not a literal command to hate your mother and father but it says in light of the comparison of your love for me it looks like hate when it comes to these very important and crucial earthly relationships through the work of christ god is our father jesus is our elder brother and co-heir and now you and i are brothers in christ Folks, that is glorious language and glorious truth. And it changes everything how you and I view each other. No matter what race you are, 
That, that's why racism in the church is absolutely the most stupid thing in the world. A brother and sister in Christ not liking each other because of the color of their skin or different economic status or whatever the differences are, hobbies, it makes no difference. All of that is pushed out of the way and our brotherhood and sisterhood in Christ supersedes that all. Let brotherly love continue, literally says, as the phrase is written, brotherly love must continue. It is a command, meaning it's already present. These folks have certainly stuck together through thick and thin. We've learned that in the book of Hebrews. But here's what I want to say to us this morning, and I think our writer, I know our writer would agree, you can't love people from a distance. No way know how. It's messy and you know it. And as a friend of mine once said, who's now a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary, played with the Cincinnati Bengals, he was so frustrated and I certainly understood why we're fishing out in this little boat. And he said to me, he said, if it weren't for people, I'd be totally fine. <laughs> and I thought, the problem is you're a person, right? But we've all felt that. But you can't love from a distance. You cannot love by just showing up for an hour and 15 minutes on Sunday morning and getting your dose of Jesus and heading off into your private life. It doesn't work that way. I want to encourage you, not only why we do community groups, but I want to encourage you to get in one. And we'll talk more about how to lay this out. So, with a big umbrella, or let brotherly love continue, now we have four specific examples of how to actually act out or live out what brotherly love looks like. And the second one comes in verse 2 when it says, show hospitality. Look at verse 2. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Now, we won't touch on the angel part, but it comes from Genesis 18. You can read it on your own. Well, Abraham was attended to and uh, engaged the Lord Jesus himself as well as angels, and God blessed him for it. But wouldn't it be cool to entertain a stranger to show hospitality? And one day you go, ha, bro, you were at my house, you know? So I'll let you in enjoy that. But the first way our writer commands us to let brotherly love continue is to not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. In our culture, we must define clearly what biblical hospitality is versus American hospitality. Because if you have uh, Martha Stewart living or Better Homes and Garden in your head, get it out right now. That is not biblical hospitality. Biblical hospitality is not entertaining someone entertaining someone is me focused it tries to use my house and home and hospitality to sort of and uh impress people with myself it, the root is pride and you know and i know we all have to work through that we can't have someone over to our house the way it what looks <laughs> no way Biblical hospitality is an expression of the gospel to love each other and to love non-Christians. It's motivated by the gospel because 
The gospel is the message of Christ that welcomes sinners. Jesus says over and over to sinners, to prostitutes, to tax collectors, to lying, fornicating scoundrels, welcome, come to me, and you will, you will experience not only forgiveness, but a transformed life, as we talked about in Romans 12 that Paul wrote. So when we get the gospel for ourselves, that we are welcomed and have been welcomed in spite of all of our sin, then we now want to do the same thing for others using our home, if you would, as a launching pad to do that. Biblical hospitality is a natural byproduct of the gospel. And many say, as I read this week, that the Hebrew Christians had started to neglect hospitality because when Christians traveled, which they did in those days, they had no way to stay. Their hotels or inns were dens of sin, if you would, and it was dangerous to travel. And so in light of that, uh, they, have, they had started to neglect hospitality. And our writer says, you've got to let these people who know Christ in your home and serve them and love them and care for them. So our question is, what would it look like or why do you and I neglect hospitality? So I want to just a minute go from meddling, uh, preaching to meddling, okay? Because I want to get inside your head and heart and ultimately your home. And I want to pick you apart a little bit using some of mine and Jenna's own thoughts, if I could. So what I'm saying here, we certainly have thought and said. I think mainly the reason why we neglect hospitality is because it's costly. It costs us money and time. It's inconvenient. And it can be very awkward to have someone over to your home that you really don't know that well. You've said hi to them in church, and you invite them to your home. Who are they? What? Are, like, right? There's a little awkwardness there. What do we say? What do we do? And We've got to create, because they're brother, our brothers and sisters in Christ, we have to create this curiosity in us, if you would. Like, who is this person? What is their story? What makes them tick? How did they come to Christ? Where are they at in their journey in Christ? How can I encourage them in Christ? I mean, there's a curiosity. So we make, when they come in our home, we, make, we, we get to know them and they get to know us. I know we make all kinds of excuses. I've heard myself and other guys say, well, we can't have anybody over because I don't want to stress my wife out. That's the first time in his life he's ever used that phrase. He stresses her out every single day. I used to tell Jenna, look, the house is a mess, but it's okay, honey. They can just sit on the laundry where I've been sitting. You know what I mean? On a serious note, I think we have an idol problem. We have an idol, and it's called my privacy. At the end of the day, it's a lack of vision for how God can use your home for the kingdom of God. Some quick bullet points here, and I could do a sermon on all these. Your home is not your home. 
you've come to that decision. Even as Rob mentioned this morning, you got a different vision. It's a beautiful ministry opportunity. It's others-focused. And God, as we saw in Genesis 18, will bless those who show hospitality. Here's what Paul says in Romans 12. Be devoted to one another, pursuing hospitality. Pursuing. Will you come to my house? That's how you pursue hospitality. 1 Peter 4.8. 3 John says the same thing. Titus 1 and 1 Timothy actually tell us that hospitality is a qualification to be an elder. They must show hospitality. Here's how Rosaria Butterfield put it in her incredible book. Uh, yeah, the gospel comes with a house key. Thank you very much. Radically ordinary hospitality is this. Using your Christian home in a daily way that seeks to make strangers neighbors and neighbors the family of God. Over 30 years ago, early in our marriage, we had many of those same thoughts Jenna and I did about having people in our home. Somewhere at some conference, a lady gave Jenna an incredible book that really laid out a picture of biblical hospitality. And she shared that with me. We were both very convicted, and we came to this conclusion. From this day forward, we will, by the grace of God, use our home to invite people in. We have been blessed by that. I cannot even tell you. I could go on and on and on to Christians and to non-Christians. One of the reasons we lead a community group, we get people in our home. The players at Clemson University, we, the, when ministry started taking off there, it was after we had had all these crazy dudes in our home eating 72 pieces of chicken one night. There were eight of them, and it was all gone, <laughs> along with Pa John's casserole. So I want to encourage you to be very specific. Maybe it's six times a year. Here's the potential plan. Once every other month, we're going to line up someone we don't know. Because there's a lot of new people at Fellowship Bible Church from all over the country. And as you engage someone, because I just talked about it, how easy to say, hey, in the next few weeks, two or three weeks, can you come over? We'd love to get to know you. That will, that will absolutely revelate, what's the word? Revolutionize, thank you very much, a church. So secondly, remember prisoners, or thirdly, remember, yeah, second concrete example, remember prisoners and the mistreated. Look at verse 3. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. Remembering those who are in prison and mistreated is the second way to live out brotherly love. This command by our writer is not like remember the Alamo, because it has a, in the Greek language, it has a force behind it. It's something that is to be a regular habit, or put another way, always remember is the tone here. It is to care for them, be concerned for them, be aware of their condition, and as a result, to respond in appropriate Christ-honoring ways. You could put it this way in your notes, maybe, remember and respond. 
And if we remember our writer's words in Hebrews 10, 34, we get some context of why he's saying this now. In 10.34, it shows how real this command is to these Hebrew Christians. He says, You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better lasting possessions. In addition, listen to Hebrews 13.23. It says, You should know that our brother Timothy has been released with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. So here's Timothy, Paul's young protege. After Paul had been beheaded for preaching the gospel, Timothy is arrested and just got released from prison. Uh, Amazing stuff going here. So it's real to them. It's just not fantasy. Now, when we think of that... We don't know anybody that's in prison necessarily because of their faith, or I don't personally. But in our world today, according to Open Door International, it's a great resource online to tell you about uh, Christians being persecuted worldwide. Here are the stats. 309 million Christians are now living in countries where they might suffer high or extreme levels of persecution, including death. In 2020, nearly 5,000 Christians were murdered for their faith. 4,500 churches worldwide destroyed or burnt to the ground. And on average, 13 Christians a day are murdered because they claim to love and follow the Lord Jesus. North Korea has 60,000 Christians in prison. I say that because you and I living in America can have this real sense that we're being persecuted if the boss says to take that Bible verse off our desk. Or we, we can't put the Ten Commandments up in the courthouse. I understand that. But folks, you and I are living as anomalies concerning 2,000 years of Christianity. There's no persecution here compared to what's gone in in the church from the time Jesus rose from the dead. A writer, too, tells us how to remember these folks. He says, just imagine you in prison, how you would want the body of Christ that you belong to to respond. There it is. Bullet points again. Man, pray for our brothers and sisters around the world. Open Door International Voice of the Martyr are great resources for you to find out what to pray for. And I want to encourage you, don't give in to being a soft American Christian. Stand firm. Be bold. Yes, be kind. But you stand firm for Christ. And then I thought, man, keep doing what you've been doing with men of valor. Yeah, those men aren't there because of Christ, but those men are in prison and they come to Christ. And there were many of them here last week. Keep doing what you're doing with men of valor. That's what our writer is talking about this morning. So how do we show brotherly love? We show hospitality. We remember prisoners and the mistreated. And then thirdly, verse 4 is marriage, to honor it and protect it. Look at verse 4. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexual, immoral, and adulterous. 
Time Magazine a few years ago did a front cover story entitled Who Needs Marriage? The cover story was based on a joint research effort from several organizations. The data came back. 40% believe marriage is now obsolete. The overriding belief is there are many ways. We can be very flexible with how you and I define marriage. So unless you've been sleeping under a rock, we know marriage is not honored among all. It is the exact opposite of what our writer is telling us just in verse 4, to honor and protect marriage. Verse 4 is really a simple three-part text. It's two commands and a statement. Honor marriage, one, two, let the marriage bed be undefiled, and three, God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. So why should we as a Christian honor marriage? Let me unpack this a little bit. I could give nine messages here. One is marriage is ordained by God. He invented marriage, and he performed the first wedding. If you remember in Genesis 2, uh, Adam is naming the animals they say came by him, and in doing so, he realized that all of them had a partner that was like them, but unlike them, but a companion, if you would. And in doing so, he realizes there's no one for me. At that moment, God comes along and puts him to sleep and crafts out of his side his mate, Eve. God wakes him up, and as he wakes up, Adam is looking in the garden, and here he sees God, who he's familiar with, but on his arm, on God's arm, is this, this person that he's never seen before. And he's waking up, and he's like, where was I? I was naming the animals, hippopotamus, giraffe. And he sees Eve. And her beauty, compared to a hippo, was extreme. <laughs> and he looks... He leans forward and he says, whoa, whoa, man, woman. That's how Eve got her name right there, woman. You're welcome for that biblical scholarship. The bottom line, marriage was God's idea. And it was God's first institution, and he created it so there would be something on earth that would reflect Christ's relationship with his bride, the church. Marriage is ordained by God and for the glory of God. And to honor marriage means we are to show it the dignity and the respect and the preciousness. And that word honor in Hebrews 13, 4 is the word precious. It's the same word where it says we've been saved by the precious blood of Christ that's more precious than silver or gold. It's that word. And it deserves it because of the one who created it. Marriage is to be a sacred covenant bound together by vows before God and witnesses. And the witnesses there at the marriage are not just there for the good food. They are there to be covenant enforcers of what they witnessed that day. Marriage is a reflection of the gospel of grace. When God says, as our writer says a little bit later, I will never leave you and never forsake you. We are to look at our spouse and says, I don't like you right now. 
but I am committed to you until we take our last breath. And don't think that Jen and I haven't said that to each other. Her to me more than me to her. I'm harder to like. Marriage is also another way to show brotherly love because if you want to bring pain to a local body of believers, have a marriage break up. Marriage is a great gift to the church. When a couple sees marriage as precious and they keep their covenant and they work hard on their marriage and they love each other and honor each other, it's an unbelievable gift to the body of Christ and it's a, the greatest gift you can give your kids to have a great thing going on between you and your spouse. Now, I say all of that with tons of grace because there's not a marriage alive, including Dennis Rainey, the president and founder of Family Life, because I've heard him speak about it, that is not hard, that where you don't hurt people. You know, you ever go to a wedding and someone says, and their vows, I will never hurt you or disappoint you. You're going, ha, flag, flag, red flag, right? And I know some of you are divorced. And the, that's what's glorious about the gospel. You can start over and move in a line with God. Let me say this for clarity so you'll know where we stand as a church. This is an add-on, but it needs to be said. Marriage is only between one man and one woman. There is no such thing of a same-sex marriage. And that doesn't mean that if you struggle with the desire of same-sex attraction, because, look, we all have our own appetites and desires. We all do. All sin is is all sexual sin is wrong but i want to be clear there's no such thing as same-sex marriage having said that i want to talk to those who are married when husbands do not love their wives as christ loves the church and when wives do not respect their husbands as god's great gift to them we do damage for what god intended for marriage folks if I had a bad marriage and I was uh, neglecting my wife in huge ways, would you come to this church? Say, say no, because you should not come. Has marriage been hard for us? Absolutely. Have we grown and changed? Absolutely, because marriage, what God does with marriage is he uses two sinful people rubbing each other, exposing each other's sin to actually conform them into his image and make them holy. <clears throat> Man, get some help. Also says marriage bed is undefiled, or how I put it, protected. God not only created marriage, but he also created sex for marriage and marriage only. Some of you guys think you created sex. You didn't, okay? God created it. He's not ashamed of it. He doesn't get red-faced. He doesn't blush. And so the reality is any kind of sex outside of marriage is sin and rebellion against a holy God. God gave a married couple of one man and one woman sex for three primary reasons. 
I'll add a fourth one, but the th three primary ones are procreation or reproduction. That's how kids got here. Imagine your parents being intimate with one another. It's a gross thought, but it happened at least a few times for you to be here. Then there's this unique intimacy that you and your spouse can experience something together that you experience with no other. And then it's pleasure. Go read the Song of Solomon if you want a blushy face. Oh, my Lord. When he starts talking about palm trees, you'll love your Bible reading on that morning. <laughs> Sex, and the fourth reason is this. It's a future picture. Sex and all the pleasure that comes with it is a future, is a picture for our future. During those few moments of sexual intimacy, you are experiencing, you're not thinking about the pain of life. You're not thinking about suffering. You have no tears, right? That's what heaven's going to be like. Here's a picture of it. Sex is a powerful gift if used as God intended. Or it's a weapon of mass destruction if it is twisted and perverted. To some of you, sex means way too much. That was me when I got married. I thought it was to solve all our problems. To my wife, it meant way too little. To me, it was too much. To her, it was dirty and a, a, a sort of a gross necessity because of her story. What we need to do is see sex in God's way. All of us, in some way, form of fashion, in word, thought, or deed, are sexual sinners. Jen and I certainly understand this struggle. Talk to us if you want more info. But sex is to be the celebration of the marriage relationship, not the foundation. <laughs> When the relationship is good, typically sex is good, not the other way around, which our culture says. And I want to say this, porn is killing marriages. Porn is cheating. Stats show that 25% of women are, 25% of porn watchers are women. Man, there is grace in Christ, but there is help in Christ Y'all got to come clean and get out of that. It is defiling your marriage bed. He uses these two words, sexual immoral, which is our word for fornicator, sexual relations with those not married, but it also still defiles the marriage because you're giving away something that you're supposed to be saving for your husband and wife, and it just makes you stupid. Sex before marriage clouds reality. It makes you stupid and dumb as a rock. You think, man, I'm in love. <laughs> no, you're not. You don't know him or her. Adultery is sex with someone as a married person that is not your spouse. I want you to just think with me a minute how different our world would be if no one would have broken God's sexual ethic of one woman and one man for a lifetime. The pain that would have been averted, divorce, sexual abuse, STDs, murder, abortions, shame, rape, prostitution, 
suicide, number one cause of death for prostitutes is suicide and has been that for a long time. Sex trafficking, mental health. Folks, humans flourish when they honor marriage and protect it with the integrity of sex only within marriage. And then our writer says, God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Here's how that works. If you are a believer and you're living in sexual sin, here's what the writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 12. God will discipline you because he loves you. He will put the heat of conviction on you. He will, as Psalm 139 says, come and he will hem you in. He will expose you and cause you to come to this place of re repentance. That's his glorious work in the life of a believer. And there's not a man here, not a man here, I won't speak for women, who hasn't been under that kind of conviction as a believer. Amen, men? Okay. Over and over, God keeps pruning us in that. If you're not a Christian, here's what's going to happen. You don't have the Spirit of God in you. You're going to go outside of God's design for his sexual ethics. You're not only going to be doing it, but then you're going to transfer from doing it and hiding it to actually applauding it and celebrating as if it were right and true. And that's going to prove to you and the world that you do not know the Lord Jesus and you will spend eternity in hell, not because you violated God's sexual ethic, because you failed to trust him and the power that you could have inside of you to change. That's how that works. Do not celebrate sexual sin. Do not tell those that you love who are living in it and celebrating it as if it were good and right and true that they are okay. They are not okay. Weep with them, pray for them, exhort them, encourage them, but do not tell them they are okay. Here's how Paul puts it. 1 Corinthians 6, and he lists this long list of sins in 1 Corinthians 6, including many sexual sins. And then he says, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Such were some of you. That was your past. Keep moving forward. And then lastly, be free from the love of money, verses 5 and 6. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Tim Keller says this in his great book, Counterfeit Gods. He says, if we are deeply moved by the sight of the Lord Jesus' love for us, it detaches our hearts from other would-be saviors like money and sexual sin. Folks, sexual sin and now money, they're terrible saviors. But you and I try to put our trust in them. They make us feel secure, but it's a false security. The love of money is a terrible God. Money itself is neutral, but we know that the love of it is the root of all evil. And typically we think we don't struggle with that. Well, Jesus talked three or four times more about the love of money than he did about sexual sin. So certainly we struggle with it. 
We need to know that contentment, that's what we're all looking for, must be cultivated, and it is cultivated by drawing near to God and trusting in his precious promises for us. A promise like, I will not leave you or forsake you, which says to you and I, I know what your finances are. <laughs> I know how much money you have. I know how much money you don't have. I know the stress that it's causing you if you lack it. And I know the problems it's creating if you have tons of it. But I'm not going to leave you. You can trust me. You can rest. You can go to sleep at night. And I will dispense to you what I deem necessary for you and your journey of Christ's likeness. Trust me and let it be. Definition of biblical contentment, that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition he puts you in. Don't sell out to a job that robs you to be a husband and dad or a mom. Don't sell out for the paycheck. In Luke 8, Jesus warns that the worries and riches and pleasures of this life are thorns that choke out the word of God from bearing Christ-like fruit. The love of money actually can cut off our ability to grow in Christ's likeness. Rob mentioned it this morning, God owns it all. Give it, give it, give it. Live within your means, save it, but for goodness sake, give it as if it's not yours. Take a minute this morning. So what? I usually give you something, but in light of our passage, our writer gave you something. Pick one of those five categories about how then shall we live. Make some personal application. Stand with me this morning, if you would. This would be a great Sunday. A great Sunday. One of those things hit hard. Great Sunday to ask for help. Someone this week to reach out to. This is one of those, these can be these, especially the sexual area, these sins that entangle us, as the writer of Hebrews says in, in, in 12. And, and you're legitimately a believer. And your struggle with those are not a surprise at all. Welcome to fighting the world and the flesh and the devil. <laughs> but you can change. I stand before you as testimony, not perfectly, but I'm not the same guy I was 
in these areas back when I came to Christ. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we come to you this morning. We're grateful for the work you're doing in this body. Let us be a Hebrews 13 kind of church. <laughs> Love the brethren and sisters. Show hospitality. Remember the prisoners and mistreated. Honor and protect marriage. What's the last one? Yeah, free from the love of money. Lord, let us be that kind of church. We love you and we ask that in Christ's name. Amen.